how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Rick Dugdale was a child actor in Canada who later found a path as a producer thanks to his work on The X-Files and films like Catwoman. Now he's a producer and director for the upcoming trilogy, Zero Contact. The first film, shot in the pandemic, stars Anthony Hopkins, Sam Hart, and Trevor Williams. The thriller was produced in 17 different countries virtually during 2020. It's set to be followed up with Zero Contact Pole to Pole and Zero Contact The Reset. In this interview, Rick talks about international appeal, how he defined the limitations for a pandemic film shot virtually, what it's like to direct a film virtually, and the logistics of this complex and shifting process to create a production guideline for the shoot. You know, I grew up as a child actor in a small town in Canada where uh, acting is probably not the best career choice that your parents would support. But uh, I moved to Vancouver and started working on X-Files and climbed the ranks as a location manager. And from there, kind of started to understand that it, but putting stuff together was something that I was interested in. And so became a producer at that point and got into finance and, and started putting deals together. But I always knew that my upbringing and growing up as an actor I probably would have an interest in directing at some point in my career and I knew the day would come. And so uh, Zero Contact became became that day that on a project that inspired me to, to jump in as a director. Did you see X-Files and, and some of your other previous work as like, as like mini movies? I mean, it really seems like X-Files specifically is like you have to look like it's a big budget whether or not it is that episode. Yeah, I mean, X-Files, certainly back in the day, I think it broke ground as, you know, the most expensive TV show. And I remember it was like 2.7 an episode. And now that's like laughable when you're talking about what Netflix does. Right. But uh, I was fortunate to do a lot of the big studio movies, whether it be like Catwoman and The Six Days where I met my business partner, Dan Peacher Jr. That was back like you would, that was a 120 day shoot and, you know, 100 plus million dollars. Even the big studio movies, I don't even think shoot 
for that long anymore, but you know, you're on it for 10 months. Um, pretty secured work, certainly. So zero contact, tell me about that idea. It kind of came with, you set these parameters within the pandemic. So what were some of those rules you had to follow to kind of, to start coming up with the idea? You know, I knew when the pandemic hit that we're obviously not going to be the first people saying, let's shoot a movie with Zoom. But if you're a gambling man, you're probably likely to gamble on the fact it's going to be a horror movie. (laughs) It's probably going to be about a virus or pandemic or something, probably. And you're going to use Zoom as the lens to capture the film. Right. So we can't do any of that. We've got to think outside the box there. So it's got to be international because if the film is going to have legs, it's got to sell to a distributor who has interest in international appeal problem, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so it's gotta be international. It's gotta be a thriller, not a horror movie probably. And it's gotta be something that we logistically can find a way to shoot by using Zoom to stand on set, which means that we have to convince actors to, or cast actors who are willing to basically record themselves uh, with real cameras. Was and you're working with some pretty big actors here, but has was some of this becoming normal before that? Because I know that like even the auditioning phase generally has changed a bit. There's a lot more self-recording as opposed to you know. So are most of your actors you're talking to before the pandemic kind of open to some of these things anyway? Yeah, I think that you know <clears throat> self tapes, you know, as they're called when you're auditioning. I think I think that that's a good question. I think the result of self tapes or self-tapes were a result of the explosion of content creators and, mm-hmm. and the streamers. Because if you're filming in LA all the time or Vancouver all the time, these casting directors and producers and filmmakers, they wanted to broaden their horizons. But if you have actors in New York or Chicago or Toronto who can't travel for every audition, they were okay with the self-tape. I mean, yeah. we did a film, two of the actors in Recon were self-tapes only. Mm-hmm. And because you can broaden your horizons and your scope of talent so i think i think that's where that probably came in and actors were comfortable self-taping I, to be honest i think it's an advantage because you're going to deliver your best performance whereas if you're in the room you could struggle and that's all you get you know so so i think the actors are very familiar taping themselves now i think what they realize they probably have a lot more respect for directors and producers because it's not just about pushing record they're doing their own hair and makeup they're right. they're adjusting the set pieces behind them there uh you know i there's many funny circumstances with with alex going oh my god i i gotta push record on two cameras oh and i gotta remember my lines you know and it was just a lot of uh funny interactions of ah see now you know now you know buddy so it was pretty fun going through that process you see some like from the acting experience yourself, do you see some benefits of that? I mean, it seems like maybe it's less pressure than walking into the room. You also kind of get to maybe shoot it a few times, that type of thing. You mean when we're making the film or self-tape in general? Uh, self-taping like auditions in general. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you, you a have perfect lighting or best you can achieve in your studio apartment or, you know, you have best sound. You probably have sound equipment like, like you have and they can deliver their best product. And so therefore the director making the choices or casting director is going to know that, uh, you know, it, it's, you're going to deliver yourself looking the best as possible. When you're in the room, you get one shot, basically. Some people aren't good in a room. You have actors that are offer only. It's like, well, they don't have a body of work, but it's because they're not good in the room. Put them right. on, on set. They're much better. 
So how did you go about directing this film? Is it more about talking one-on-one through Zoom? You're, are you kind of describing to them what you want them to do in the room? And how, how is it? Obviously, it's very different than, than other directing, but what was it like in your perspective? You know, I think the first step was <clears throat> convincing people, crew as well, that this won't be a waste of your time. Now, we had the advantage because people had a lot of time on their hands because no one was working, right? You weren't shooting a movie. So we had that as an advantage. But once you talk to the actors and explain to them, no, 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 trust us. This is, this is something that can work. We had to help them with the psychology of feeling that they were on a set. So we had the production designer who was on set, the DP, the AD. I even had the editor on set, which was Zoom. Like I said, it's not, it's not a Zoom movie. It's, we use Zoom as a device to stand at Video Village. And then once, and I told all the crew before the actors came on, the AD, Artie, you run the lines with the actor. Ed, we're going to do a location scout. Tell me, you know, let's, let's look at the lighting. Like if it's a white wall, let's, let's take, have them take us downstairs to the other room. Great. That's going to be your set piece. All right. This is scene 36. So if we treated it like professionals and a professional set, it'll put the actor into the mindset to deliver the best possible performance. And once we did that, it, it ran like a real set. Our AD was cracking the whip and like, okay, guys, we got to go. We're in Tokyo in an hour, which is funny because we were company moves all around the world, but that's how it went. We, we got to be in Tokyo in an hour because guess what? Riku has to go to work at his real job because he was working remote, you know? So it was, uh, it was once we convinced them that it was a real feeling to it, they delivered, delivered a performance for sure. Did you feel like you got things faster? Was there any reshoots or things like that? Was, is, I guess there's, a, I guess it would be like this. A lot of it just goes into the pre-planning and everything else. But did you, did you always know you had it when you worked with an actor on the shooting day? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, we, there was a couple reshoots due to technical problems, right? And those are technical problems that we just, we were, you know, rolling with the punches, so to speak. Like we knew there was going to be Wi-Fi issues. And if there's a Wi-Fi issue, it didn't mean we didn't get the performance because they're not, they're recording with the camera in their own place. Mm -hmm. Right. So we either had to do playback looking at like that. We did do that, you know, uh, or, or they'd send us the file and we'd look at it and okay, we got that. We don't need to do it. But um, I think when you would see like Chris Pershue's performance mm -hmm. and his performance was bringing an emotional response from us that, and you could feel it. And there was a moment in time where all of us said, Holy, like this, this is working. This is actually working. I can't, I can't wait to see the footage in his 5d that he captured it in versus the zoom image, you know? Mm -hmm. And then even for the actor to see our response, and we were trying to go heads up sometimes, but I would be heads up, but the crew would go, go black. So at least he kind of had someone to act opposite to, or already the AD reading the lines, but there you could see their performance when they, when they see our reactions just amplified, you know, mm -hmm. there's a moment where everyone just kind of said this, this is actually going to work, you know? So for those trying to do something similar, you're not just using like a basic zoom, you're, you're using a Canon 5d or something along those lines in each of these situations. Yeah. You got to remember too, like to deliver a movie. So for, for a company like Lionsgate to release the film, it's, you know, they're looking for the highest grade possible. Yeah. And yes, there's Blair Witch projects and all that stuff. That was still 16 mil or eight mil, I think, basically. So 
to avoid the low res version and it's, it's compressed on zoom. I mean, some of the footage and the making of, if, if you get to see that it's really bad quality because it was over zoom, you know? Right. So I think people like we had a production guideline at some point we should publish that. And the production guideline was created by Ed Lucas. And it was, so it said, you know, here, here's where, you know, okay, Brock, if you're going to mount your camera, if you're going to capture your zoom shot with Alex, Mm-hmm. then your camera will be mounted just above the eye line of the zoom camera. So then we capture that with the real camera, but you're still looking at a zoom at us reading lines opposite you. So you and I are doing conversation dialogue, but the real camera is capturing that above. Right. So, you know, and then we had, uh, whether it be bags of rice, you know, mounts for cameras, that kind of stuff. Right. Again, you had to keep it simple because they're not going to have tripods and you know C stands in their house, obviously. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it was there was like a logistics guideline that we presented to everybody, a handbook. It reminds me of those things when you see in movies where NASA is doing something that they have to replicate elsewhere. Like you're having to come up with these things on the spot. Yes, MacGyver, the movie is part of it. You know, right. Um, what were some other unexpected difficulties in doing this? Anything that comes to mind that you really didn't call account for? Yeah, we had, uh, you know, there were, you know, some of the actors uh, were getting ready to shoot and realized that, uh, you know, other family members are coming over that night. So all of a sudden we had the location issues because, like, oh, wait, well, we can't shoot for six hours if your whole family's there. So, uh, you know, stuff like that, because we're filming at home. There's actually a ra- rather interesting story is uh, at Alex's apartment in Seattle. Uh, that's a high rise. So we had a drone operator, again, with zero contact. So the drone operator is flying up, you know, trying to communicate with Alex remotely, like, okay, texting him. Uh, start start performing because I can't zoom in with the drone operator, right? So he's kind of on his own. Okay, I'm I'm about to fly up. So then Alex starts doing his performance as the drone's coming up, you know. But we couldn't. He couldn't communicate with Alex while he was doing it. So Alex just like kept going for minutes until, until finally he turns to the drone. Like, do we get it? Because he doesn't know. We can't communicate. So. A lot of issues like that, but again, we once we were going to go, you know, truly double entendre, the zero contact, we we stuck with it, and we obviously there's COVID restrictions all over, but you know, we we kind of owned it and went out of our way to make sure that we never crossed that line. There's been a couple in the last couple of years. I don't know what you. I was going to actually ask you: Is there a name for this yet? The digital like contained thriller. Is there a name for this genre or not really? Well, it's certainly a subgenre, and it's like uh, you know, self shooting or remote shooting. I think remote shooting is the closest thing. Found footage, you know, is a subgenre of a horror movies. So, is this a remote shoot? You know, I think I think is the closest thing to it. Um, you know, I think I think I, I there's there's a future where I think filmmakers in multiple countries should collaborate to expand the scope of a film. So if you're in, you know, South Africa and you're in Malaysia and you're just a filmmaker trying to make a film, you guys should meet on Reddit and find out, hey, you know, do you have a camera? What kind of camera do you have? Great. You went to film school? Great. Can you go shoot the sequence, uh, you know, out on the ocean with these three people in a, in a, on a raft? Great. And then go to, you know, Mongolia and can somebody get the footage of the guys on the mountaintop in the snow great now i'm going to bring all this stuff together and it's 
it's an international film. I think Ridley Scott did something. He, he harvested a bunch of footage like that, but international remote shooting, it, you know, if you can create a storyline that works like that and actually have the right filmmakers that you can find, now you have this international film that will give you more roads to victory with distribution because it's interesting and it's international and you've expanded your horizons and the audience's horizons. And if you're a filmmaker in one of these countries, you don't need a work visa to work in the US. You don't need the cost of flights to go and try to make it and try to break into Hollywood. You have done it remotely. Just make a good film at that point and eyeballs and interest and uh, potential is going to come your way. You see a balance of, so there years ago when Robert Rodriguez came out with his uh, Rebel Without a Crew book, he kind of says, like, write a list of things. Like, what do you have? Go make a movie with what you have. All of a sudden you have, it looks like you have a budget, even though you don't. When you're, when you're thinking of a movie like this, I think you've got some other ones in the works too. Are you doing an equal balance of idea plus what we have? When you're thinking about international, you're kind of like, listing the possibilities along with the story and then it all comes together. Do you see it as a mutual type of thing like that? I mean, for us, I mean, we're, we are going out with zero contact two and three in a more conventional fashion, right? So those are, you know, big films with all the tools, all the bells and whistles that, that you would normally have. So it's a little different, but, you know, I, I do think that, you know, when, when I read a script as a producer, the first thing I kind of analyze is like, where could you shoot it? You know, mm -hmm. it might be set here, but could you shoot it here? And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it's driven by financial components, but um, I think it's a, it's a little hard to answer that one if we, because our, our films are bigger, but I think that if you're a, a filmmaker, yeah, like we did, look at the resources you have. I totally agree with Rodriguez on that. Um, don't overcomplicate it. You know, don't, don't be too ambitious, right? Find out, do the inventory on your life. As I like to say, look around you and see what's available to you and make a film to that. Or as Dan would say, my business partner, you know, he always says, write what you know, like most writers would say, and I say, write what you know someone's going to buy. So you got to make something. So you got to think of how you get distribution. That's going to, how that's going to trigger your career and your second movie and third movies. You need to have an out to um, get distribution. Otherwise, if no one sees your movie, no one's going to see your second movie. Tell me a little bit. I know you probably can't share too many details, but it is already listed as the reset and pole to pole. So if that's correct, then also like, um, how are you shooting them both at once? Why shoot them both at, at once? Is it just more of a, a logistic type manner or what's some of the, pro the thought process there? Yeah. So we are, <clears throat> we are in production. We're currently on hiatus right now, just for uh, some of the locations, but block shooting them. Mm -hmm. is because some of the locations in part two and three in a very similar time period have the same actors and maybe a wardrobe change. So if you're going to go to Antarctica, you, you better shoot the sequences from part three and part two at the same time because you're not going to go back, mm -hmm. right? And then our, our journey with our cast who are, you know, as you'll see, venture around the world to find the clues to also help solve the hard enterprises, you know, world, um, you're going to have all this cast in all these locations. So same thing. You might as well shoot part two and three sequences at the same time. So you're not going back to Bolivia twice. So it just lends itself to a block shooting strategy, you know, perfectly. And I think we just got maybe time for one more. Any other just advice for those trying to break in today? If you're maybe giving advice to a young director who wants to just kind of put himself out there, put herself out there and, 
make something presentable, be it for the uh, festival circuit or for YouTube or however your people are getting noticed today? Yeah, a couple of things. You know, I, I like to tell filmmakers, get on a set. You know, you can you can go to film school and you can be learn the process of being a director. But I've had a lot of directors or people that come out of film school as directors who work for me as PAs and realize, you know what, I want to be a cinematographer or I want to be a costume designer. And and so rather than go to film school out of the gate, get on a film set and identify what you really like. Go through the process because it's not necessarily going to be what you set out to do. The other thing is, as a director in going into film school and you're coming out trying to make your film, make the feature. Don't make the short. You know, in today's world and technology and everything we just talked about, zero contact, you can make a feature for the same price, essentially. If you make a feature, you will find distribution. It could be Tubi, it could be Lionsgate, it could be, it could be anyone. There's this, you know, there's so much content that's required. If you make the feature, more eyeballs see your feature. If you make the short, very few people win at that. Damien Chazelle is one of them, right? But make the feature, you're gonna have more outs for people to see it. And guess what? You're probably gonna recoup a little bit of money that you borrowed from Uncle Joe to make the film. And that's key to also making your second film is to get Uncle Joe's money back. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.